Hi, I'm Mark O'Connell. You're listening to Far-Fetched, a podcast about my largely unpaid but mostly enjoyable career as a writer. Now, a couple of big things have happened in the last two weeks. First of all, there was a mega, mega huge Star Trek convention in Chicago that was all over Twitter. I couldn't be there because uh, of my cancer treatment. I still can't travel much. But it sure was fun to follow along on Twitter, man. There were lots of people there, lots of really interesting people having lots of fun and doing all sorts of goofy Star Trek stuff. So that was that was kind of cool. The second thing is way cooler. The second thing is, in the last two weeks, uh, I found out that my cancer is in remission which feels fantastic. I can't even begin to explain how nice it is to have that load taken off my shoulders. About two weeks ago, my wife and I went into the bone marrow transplant clinic where I've been getting my care for the last six months. And we sat in a consultation room and waited a few minutes. And then the nurse practitioner showed up with a, a ream of papers with reports from my latest blood tests. And the nurse practitioner sits down with us and she just says, well, your numbers look great, Mark. Your white blood cell count is such and such and your red blood cell count is such and such. And I just kind of cut her off and I said, so am I in remission? And she went, oh, yeah, absolutely. Yes. <laughs> and my wife and I were like, okay, well, thanks for getting to the important part so quickly. So th- that was huge. The last six months have been pretty surreal and pretty hellish in a lot of ways. I know I've talked about my treatment in earlier episodes of the podcast, so there's no need to belabor the point. Just that I feel great. I'm thrilled to be in remission. There's still follow-up care, of course, and I'll have to go back in and be checked for things periodically every three months, then every six months, then every year, just to make sure things are still going well. But it's all good. An interesting detail of it, though, is that the treatment they gave me, the blood, the bone marrow transplant that I got, wiped out every vaccination I've ever gotten in my life, from polio to mumps right up to COVID-19. So I've also started getting those vaccination shots redone, starting with shingles and COVID-19. That process is going to take many, many months, but it feels good to have it started anyway. Now, these two events, the Star Trek convention and my cancer going into remission, are related in in a weird way. All of this took me back recently to a time many years ago, several years after I had written my scripts for uh, Star Trek. A friend of mine asked me to give a presentation to a class he was teaching. He was doing a summer vacation uh, arts program for Chicago Public Schools, and he invited me to come and talk to his students about uh, writing, which I was very happy to do. I think at the time I was probably working on a movie script. Can't remember exactly, but I might, to the best of my memory, that's what I was working on at the time. But I, I went to the went to the school and gave a, gave a talk to the kids, and they were all pretty much like junior high age, as I recall. And it was a lot of fun, and the kids seemed really res- receptive. Uh, they seemed interested throughout. They asked good questions. But the the most interesting thing happened at the very end when I was all done answering questions, and I was saying goodbye to my friend and you know he was thanking me for for helping out and and then I was about to leave and one of the kids came up to me and I don't remember much about him I remember I remember it was a boy that's about all I remember a junior high aged boy came up to me and he was kind of nervous but kind of excited 
And he just said, Mr. O'Connell, I, I really loved your talk. Uh, I'm a huge Star Trek fan. I'm maybe the hugest Star Trek fan in the world. And he said, I just want to tell you, Star Trek changed my life. And I'm I'm sad to say my reaction to that was was very muted, and, and and I'm not really sure why. But at the time, I guess I wasn't really feeling all that connected to my Star Trek work. And and when he came up and said that to me, I sort of felt like, well, that's great, but I can't take credit for that because I'm just a teeny teeny <laughs> wheel. In the Star Trek mechanism, I mean, I'm glad to know that it changed your life. And I'm, you know, I guess I'm glad I'm a little bit of a part of that. Sadly, though, I never asked him. I never went any deeper. That's kind of the way I am. I didn't want to start asking him, well, how did it change your life? But I bet if I had, we would have had a really good conversation. And I, I kind of regret that now that I didn't, I didn't keep the conversation going. So... The last two weeks, I go in remission. There's this cool Star Trek convention, and I'm thinking, I'm thinking, God, man, it's so cool that I'm a part of this. It's it's so cool that I'm a part of this. And then I remember this kid, and thinking at the time, I didn't appreciate what it meant to be a part of this, and and now I really do, and I'm really grateful. I'm glad to be a part of Star Trek world, and I hope I hope it continues. Now, today's main attraction is one, one of my unsold pitches to Star Trek The Next Generation. Today's pitch is simply titled Riker Number 3. That's all I've written at the top of the first page. And that could mean either one of two things. It could mean that this was the third Riker story I had ever pitched to Next Generation, or more likely it means that on this day I pitched four stories and the number three story was a Riker story, which means that the number one, two, and four stories would have dealt with other characters. I never, ever wanted to pitch two stories in one sitting uh, dealing with the same character. So this would be the only Riker episode. So I'm guessing that's it. It's the third story I pitched that day. And th this one's especially interesting to me because going through my files, I immediately found three different versions of this pitch and one of the versions very clearly was something that I was uh, because of the notations I have here on the pages this version is one I was actually thinking of writing as a Star Trek novel you probably realize if you follow Star Trek that there are dozens maybe hundreds of Star Trek novels out there that have been written over the years and over time as I started to build up this backlog of unsold pitches at one point, my agent and I thought, hey, I should repackage these as Star Trek uh, novels, Star Trek paperbacks, see if I can, you know, make, make some money off of a, a rejected story. So one of the outlines that I have here is just that. It's an outline for a Star Trek paperback novel. Anyway, so here we go with Riker number three. We begin with the teaser. The Enterprise is at Starbase 12, picking up equipment and personnel for an unusual and tantalizing scientific mission, locating and recovering the remains of the near-mythical Hamajian starship Mercury. The crew is buzzing with excitement over this romantic mission and the untold technical wealth it promises, and go about quoting half-remembered lines from the ancient epic poem that tells of the Mercury's disappearance centuries ago. Will Riker is surprised to find that the director of the mission is one Cleo Fairchild, 
who was both Riker's greatest rival and greatest love in his years at Starfleet Academy. End teaser. In case you didn't notice, this story is clearly taken from Titanic. It's Titanic in outer space. End of teaser. On to Act 1. On Fairchild's instructions, the Enterprise sets out for the coordinates at which she believes the Mercury will be found. The Mercury, we learn, was the only ship in history to be able to cruise indefinitely at warp 9.9. It disappeared on its maiden flight across the galaxy, supposedly swallowed up by a massive wormhole that its own engines had created, and it's been sung about and searched for ever since. Riker and Fairchild catch up on each other's lives, and we learn that Fairchild left both Starfleet and Riker because they both played things too strictly and predictably for her. Fairchild has followed Riker's career, however, and admits that she may have misjudged him. For her part, she has devoted her life to the pursuit of the Mercury, the greatest unknown she could find. Through exhaustive research of historical records and star charts, and literal and figurative interpretation of mythical accounts, she believes she can locate where the Mercury and its dead crew may still languish in the decaying remnants of a wormhole held back from total collapse by hyperwarp engines that theoretically still pulse with power. Although he feels that they are on a fool's errand, Riker allows that Fairchild has already done the impossible in convincing Starfleet that the Mercury exists and may be salvageable, and for that alone she's earned some respect in his eyes. She smugly reminds Riker that he once wooed her with readings from the Epic of the Mercury. End Act 1. Act 2. En route, Fairchild shares her findings and theories with the Enterprise officers and creates a contagious excitement over the mission, just as she did with Starfleet Command. Nearly everyone on the Enterprise, Picard included, has been caught up in the excitement of this mission, but Riker remains dubious. He considers the Mercury story to be more legend than fact, but finds himself so entranced by Fairchild's enthusiasm and certainty that he finds himself going along somewhat reluctantly. Fairchild finds she cannot ignore the challenge of breaking what she sees as Riker's narrow-mindedness, and the old rivalry-slash-attraction develops anew, only stronger than ever. On the way to the Mercury coordinates, the Enterprise detects a Ferengi marauder tailing them at a discreet distance, and Picard is reminded that this exciting romantic mission has a potential dark side. End Act 2. Act 3. The Enterprise arrives at the Mercury coordinates, and the Ferengi ship takes position just within sensor range. Picard contacts the Ferengi, and they make no secret about their interest in the Mercury and the wealth it may hold. The Ferengi captain says that they are there to render assistance if it is required, but Picard knows that they are there to claim salvage rights if for any reason the Enterprise fails. Fairchild reveals to the officers how these coordinates seem to match an eerily consistent set of clues gathered from the legends of various archaic civilizations, and they all become convinced that they have found the Mercury's resting place. The next stage of the mission involves a brief, massive burst of warp-equivalent power 9.9 focused on the Mercury coordinates. Theoretically, the power burst will crack open the wormhole and allow the Enterprise a brief glimpse of the Mercury inside. While Geordi and Data prepare for the operation, Riker goes to Fairchild's quarters to congratulate her on her initial success. Fairchild is pleased that she seems to have gotten past even Riker's skepticism, and she dangles a carrot in front of him. If the Mercury is found, she wants Riker and only Riker to join her when she beams aboard the ship. 
They grab hold of each other in a passionate embrace, only to be interrupted by Geordi's signal that he's ready to move on to the next stage of the mission. Riker and Fairchild report to the bridge and join the others in the intoxicating suspense of the moment. Geordi and Data coordinate the power burst according to Fairchild's directions, and a weak, wavering wormhole appears. The hole is too unstable for the Enterprise to venture in, but it does not need to, for there within visual range is the intact, pulsing hulk of the legendary Mercury. Contact having been made, the wormhole is allowed to close once more before being reopened for the next stage of the mission, beaming across. End Act 3 Act 4 As preparations are made for the next phase of the operation, the Ferengis move closer in, maintaining their insistence that they are there to render aid if the Enterprise needs help. Picard and Riker display their usual contempt for the Ferengi, but at present Picard can do nothing more than to instruct Worf to keep a keen eye on the Marauder and report any suspicious activity. Riker and Fairchild, meanwhile, have been studying schematics of the Mercury acquired by means of an intense sensor scan performed for the few moments the ship was visible in the wormhole. Data and Geordi confirm that the Mercury's engines are intact and operational and are the only thing maintaining the bubble of hyperspace around the ship. They also confirm, hypothetically at least, Fairchild's theory that she will be able to fire up the Mercury's hyperwarp drive and recreate the original imbalance that created the wormhole in the first place, reopening the wormhole and getting the Mercury out into real space. It is a risky operation, but Data predicts a comfortably high probability of success. Now that they know where to go and how to proceed, Riker and Fairchild don their atmosphere suits and prepare to beam across. This will be a delicate maneuver, since they can only beam across while the Enterprise has the wormhole cracked open, and since the bulk of the ship's power is required to keep the hole open. At Picard's signal, the operation is begun, and Riker and Fairchild beam successfully over to the Mercury before the wormhole is allowed to close once more. The bridge of the Mercury is a wasteland of dust and decay, but Riker and Fairchild behave as though they were on sacred ground and were afraid to disturb even a single dust mote. They are in the grip of intense excitement, and one gets the impression that if they weren't in atmosphere suits, they would be tearing each other's clothes off. Once they get over the initial exhilaration, they go to work firing up the hyperwarp drive. It takes some time, but the centuries in virtual stasis seem to have preserved the ship's power source, and it does appear that Fairchild has been correct all along. The Mercury will be able to free itself from its grave. As they prepare for the final stage of the mission, Fairchild tells Riker that she has waited for this moment to pop the question to him. The salvage of the Mercury will make her a wealthy woman and enable her to explore other greater secrets of the universe, and she wants Riker to resign from Starfleet and join her as her partner. End Act 4 Act 5 Riker brushes off Fairchild's offer, telling her that they had better recover the ship first, but he can't hide his interest from her. They are able to communicate with the Enterprise in real space in simple Morse code, similar to tapping on the hull of a submarine to communicate with the outside. And in this way, Data and Geordi are able to offer technical assistance as Riker and Fairchild work to gun up the Mercury's hyperwarp drive. As the ship's power levels build, so does Fairchild's excitement. Even she can't believe how successful she's been, and she begins to entertain notions of renegotiating with Starfleet before taking the Mercury out of the bubble. Riker begins to question her motives, and the two quickly come to disagreement over why they are salvaging the Mercury. 
Riker begins to see that Fairchild's motives are awfully similar to those of the despised Ferengi, and he turns down her offer of a partnership and insists that he would rather scuttle the mission than allow her to renegotiate. While they argue, the Mercury's hyperwarp drive has come online and it begins to exhibit the same instability that must have originally doomed it. The instability is affecting the wormhole bubble much faster than Riker and Fairchild can react and compensate. When the bubble begins to shrink and decay, Riker signals the Enterprise to reopen the wormhole and beam the away team to safety. But Fairchild refuses to leave, going so far as to draw a phaser on Riker. With disgust, Riker signals the Enterprise that only he will be beaming back. On the Enterprise, Geordi and Data crack open the wormhole once more as Chief O'Brien begins to energize. At that moment, Worf calls out that the Ferengi ship is preparing to emit a massive amount of warp-equivalent power. But it is too late for Geordi, Data, or O'Brien to stop. The Ferengis focus their own burst of energy on the expanding wormhole, and it instantly envelops the Enterprise. Geordi and Data find they must sustain their power output to maintain the integrity of the wormhole, but it is at the expense of O'Brien's transporter power. Riker appears half-materialized on the transporter deck, but all O'Brien can do is maintain the beam while Geordi and Data struggle to keep the Ferengi-induced wormhole from collapsing. Acting in perfect concert, Geordi and Data divert just enough power to O'Brien to rematerialize Riker. O'Brien quickly apprises Riker of the situation as a signal comes in from Fairchild asking to be transported back from the Mercury. As Geordi and Data perform the delicate juggling act of using just enough warp power to maintain the wormhole and just enough to get the Enterprise out, O'Brien begins to beam Fairchild across. But like Riker before her, she becomes trapped in the beam. There's no longer power to spare for O'Brien to complete the materialization. As the Enterprise escapes into real space, O'Brien loses his fix, and a desperate Fairchild cries out from the vanishing beam. O'Brien tells Riker that he took the only option available to him. He beamed Fairchild back to the Mercury. Riker signals to the bridge that Fairchild must be rescued from the wormhole, and Picard orders Geordi and Data to use the ship's remaining power to crack the wormhole open one more time. They send out a final burst of power, but nothing happens. The warp bubble and the Mercury are no longer there. As Riker returns to the bridge, a furious Picard signals to the Ferengi marauder as it prepares to beat a hasty retreat. Picard accuses the Ferengi of attempting to extract the Mercury from the warp bubble and imprison the Enterprise in its place, but the Ferengi captain insists that they were merely trying to help Picard rescue his away team. Riker speaks out of turn, telling the Ferengi in very undiplomatic terms to scram. Riker asks Data if the Mercury's warp bubble can be located, but Data can offer no hope. The bubble has either collapsed or traversed hyperspace to a new unknown location. Either way, the Mercury is lost, and Fairchild with it. End. Well... I still think that's a pretty fun story, damn it. As usual, I have not read this pitch before reciting it to you on the podcast. I have not looked at this. As I read this story now, I'm kind of getting, I'm, I'm tingling, I'm tingling all over. That's the only way to put it. I'm really excited by this story. I, I think I was really, really cooking with gas when I wrote this all those years ago. And I can see why I tried to adapt it as a novel and why I tried to present it in a 
multiple <laughs> multiple different formats to try to get something going with it. I think it's got a lot of action. It's got a lot of suspense. It's got a great emotional hook for Riker. And yeah, I'm I'm really psyched about this story. I'll I'll have to maybe do some thinking about whether I can do anything more with it now. I think they're still publishing Star Trek novels. Maybe I should check that out. Now, the story treatment I just read to you for Riker number three was about four and a half pages long. I also have a two-page version, and now I'm going to read that, just so you can see how I cut a story down pretty much in half to make it more presentable as a pitch. Here we go. The crew is abuzz with excitement over a tantalizing mission to locate and recover the remains of the near-mythical starship Mercury. Believed to be able to cruise indefinitely at warp 9.9, the Mercury disappeared millennia ago, swallowed up by a massive wormhole that its own engines had created, and has been sung about and searched for ever since. The mission director is Elena Fairchild, a former Starfleet officer who left the service because it played things too strictly for her. She believes she has located where the Mercury still languishes in the wormhole, and that it can be salvaged. Although he feels they're on a fool's errand, Riker is intrigued by Fairchild's enthusiasm. She can't resist the challenge of breaking Riker's skepticism, and an attraction develops between them. The Enterprise arrives at the Mercury coordinates, and a Ferengi marauder appears. The Ferengi captain says that they are there to render assistance if it is required, but Picard knows that they are there to claim salvage rights if for any reason the Enterprise fails. Geordi and Data coordinate a power burst according to Fairchild's directions, and a weak, wavering wormhole opens just long enough to reveal the intact Mercury. Fairchild seems to have gotten past Riker's skepticism, and she dangles a carrot in front of him. She wants Riker and only Riker to join her when she beams aboard the ship. They beam across while the Enterprise has the wormhole cracked open. The Mercury is a wasteland of dust and decay, but the centuries in virtual stasis have preserved the ship's power source, and it appears that the Mercury will be able to free itself. Fairchild makes Riker an offer. The salvage of the Mercury will make her a wealthy woman and enable her to explore other greater secrets of the universe. She wants Riker to resign from Starfleet and join her as her partner. Riker brushes off the offer, but he can't hide his interest. As the ship's power levels build, so does Fairchild's excitement and she begins to entertain notions of renegotiating with Starfleet. Riker begins to question her motives and turns down her offer of a partnership, insisting that he would rather scuttle the mission than allow her to renegotiate. While they argue, the Mercury's hyperwarp drive has come online, and it begins to exhibit the same instability that must have originally doomed it. When the bubble begins to shrink, the Enterprise reopens the wormhole to beam them away to safety, but Fairchild refuses to leave and draws a phaser on Riker. Riker signals the Enterprise that only he will be beaming back. As Geordi and Data begin to energize, the Ferengis focus their own burst of energy on the wormhole, and it envelops the Enterprise. Riker appears half-materialized, but all Worf can do is maintain the beam while Geordi struggles to keep the wormhole from collapsing. Riker makes it, and a signal comes in from Fairchild asking to be transported back. Worf begins to beam Fairchild across, but as the Enterprise escapes into real space, he loses his fix, and a desperate Fairchild cries out from the vanishing beam. Worf tells Riker that he took the only option available to them. He beamed Fairchild back to the Mercury. As the Ferengis flee, Geordi uses the ship's remaining power to crack open the wormhole once more, but nothing happens. The bubble has either collapsed or traversed hyperspace to a new, unknown location, Either way, the Mercury is lost, and Fairchild with it. 
Well, that's kind of an interesting comparison. You can tell this version is much, much more brief than the original one. And there are a couple of interesting, but seemingly inconsequential changes. For some reason, Worf is operating the transporter. I don't know what happened there. The character of Fairchild has a new first name instead of Cleo, she's Illini. And according to this shorter version, Fairchild and Riker do not have a history. They meet for the first time in this treatment. So, there you get to see a glimpse of how a story evolves. I'd write, I'd read you the third version that I have here on my stack, but I think that might be overkill. This has been Farfetched. Thanks for listening, and as always, live long and prosper. If you like the podcast, please write a review, send me a comment. I'd love to hear from you. 